Made by Women is a new show brought to you by the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. We bring you inspiring stories and shared learnings to help you successfully navigate today's environment. Benefit from the experiences of legendary entrepreneurs, as well as everyday women in business who have found success their own way. Consider it your real-world MBA, designed for the new now. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and you can listen to Made by Women on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Devin Leary. And I'm Carolina Barlow. And we're here to tell you to dump him. Break up with your boyfriend. And we want you to listen to our podcast, True Romance, every week, where we talk about our love lives and the love lives of others. Please join our exes, who we know will also be listening. Like Kyle. Kyle, are you there? Hey, babe, how's life? No, you look good, though. Me? Oh, my God, stop. Please, I haven't even gotten a haircut in like three months. Okay, please help us pay for Carolina's psychiatrist bills by listening on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want true romance. Welcome to Monster, DC Sniper, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. By the evening of uh, the 23rd, by about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, we knew who we were looking for. We knew what they were in. We knew these people were going to continue to kill people until they were stopped. We just didn't know where to find them. I guess it was probably 11.30 that night. I'm going home to Frederick, and as I approached Frederick County, I switched over to Frederick Barrick Channel, and I called the Barrick as I'm required. The uh, duty sergeant, Sergeant Hundermark, comes on and says, copy that 662, can you go to secure Channel 1? And I knew something was up. I switched over to Channel 1, and I got on the radio, and. Sarge says, just got a phone call. Five minutes after that radio station there in Frederick broadcast that that's who we were looking for, a citizen spotted them parked in that rest area in Myersville. And I told Sergeant Hundermark, send everybody you got. And he said, well, counting you, sir, that's three because they're all in Montgomery County. (laughs) Well, saddle up, boys. Our old adage, one riot, one trooper, let's go. There is a ruthless person on the loose. What unnerves this community the most is the randomness of the murders. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. They killed the five people in one day and then went on the rampage for the next month. It is quite a mystery. The police say they have never had a crime quite like this. Be careful. These guys are using weapons that are going to go right straight through our bulletproof vests. There's a white van just went by with two guys in it. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Monster, DC Sniper. I wasn't anticipating this ending well. Once they realized they were cornered, I knew we were in for a shootout. I just knew it. It was the night of October 23rd. Maryland State Police Lieutenant David Reichenbaugh was on his way home when he learned that the sniper's car had been spotted. Just minutes after a radio station broadcast the details about the Blue Caprice, a witness saw it parked in a rest area 45 miles away up in the mountains of Northwest Maryland. 
I drove out to the scene with Reichenbaugh so he could explain to me exactly what happened that night. When Sergeant Hundermark told me that the sniper car had been spotted in the rest area, I said, are you sure? And he said, it's confirmed as best as we can confirm it. The caller who I'm on the line with said they had heard it on the radio that the police were looking for this vehicle. And Sergeant Hundermark says, what are your orders, sir? And I said, my orders are notify the Joint Operations Center of the sighting, let them know that I am en route and will establish a perimeter. I had that police car flat out at 115 miles an hour, as fast as that poor thing would go. So Dave, we're 10 miles out from Frederick. Yep. What's happening in your head? What's going through my head is, how are we gonna deal with this? The training kicks in. I asked Sergeant Hundermark, who do I have going? He tells me, you've worked with these guys in narcotics. We're all narcs together. So I knew they had the same SWAT team basic training that I had. My goal is twofold. Number one, get up here, let's secure this scene. The other thing going through my mind is if we can get there and in position before they leave that rest area, no matter what, they're not getting out. They're not going to get past us. Meaning? If we have to use lethal force to stop them, if we have to crash a police car into that Caprice, we're going to do what we need to do. They are not getting out of that rest area. I mean, I'm flying, I've got the center of the car right on the dotted line. I'm straddling both lanes as fast as I can go. The next thing that's going through my mind is, if I were these bad guys, what would I do? And my thought process was, one would be sleeping in the car, the other one would be in the woods with that rifle, what professionally we would call an overwatch. We had handguns and a shotgun. We were outgunned. I had contemplated, hey, just the three of us, let's go bum rush them. But if we did that, and the scenario that I was thinking about came true, then we were dead. He's going to be able to kill all of us before we even figure out where the shot's coming from. So that was last resort. The next thought process was, let's see if we can somehow get any other civilians out of that rest area and seal that rest area in. I'm worried about the potential for a hostage barricade situation. I'm worried about a high-speed pursuit. I'm worried about them carjacking an 18-wheeler, and now we've got them basically driving a tank, which they're going to run over any police car we've got. I mean, you've killed people, you've wounded four more, you're the most wanted two people probably in the world. Why not go out in a blaze of glory? At the bottom of this hill, right before we get off the exit, you're exactly one mile from the rest area. The rest area is right on top of that mountain. Are you in touch with your other guys on the radio at this point? At this point, yeah, they're hearing me. TFC Draskovic, Pashel, and the K-9 guy were just announcing that they were arriving. And I also had ordered silent running too. No lights, no sirens, nothing. And right at the beginning of this rest area, just pull over on the right shoulder here. That's where we met. It was myself, TFC Draskovic, TFC Paschal, and uh, Rich Poffenberger, the canine trooper out of Hagerstown. I was patched in with our witness, and I asked them, 
Do you see anything? Nope, everything's quiet. Do you see us? No. Do you hear us? No. Whitney Donahue, the witness who had first reported the Caprice, agreed to stay on his cell phone at the rest stop. 911 dispatchers patched Donahue's cell phone through to Reichenbaugh so the two could talk. Reichenbaugh figured that if his witness hadn't seen the police cars pull up, then neither had the snipers. So at that point, I tell TFC Draskovic and Paschal, block this entry. So they pulled their car sort of in a V right about where the rest area sign is. My canine guy, I said, I want you to go in the middle between the entrance and the exit. Get the dog out, keep him quiet. Anybody that comes out of this rest area on foot, assume they are the sniper and turn the dog loose. Keep in mind, they had us outgunned. We had handguns and a shotgun. They had that Bushmaster. And I told him, I'm going to the exit and I will set up my command post there. And then eventually I got another trooper out of Hagerstown and him and I blocked the exit. So that's how we stood for the first 20 minutes. The next incoming troopers, we had them block the interstates, both directions. I wanted everybody off the mountain. From what we could tell, we might have had a dozen trucks parked in the truck lot. As luck would have it, we had a couple of truck drivers start to come out to leave. We stopped them, searched their rigs, and I asked them if they wanted to be good Americans. And it was like, well, yeah, troop, what do you need? I said, well, we got the snipers in the rest area, and it was, holy shit, you're kidding me, right? I said, no. I said, them bastards are in there? I just took a piss. And I said, can you throw your truck across this exit so that that car cannot get out of here? Yes, sir, be our owner. Now I'm on the phone with my witnesses and I'm on the phone with the Joint Operations Center because as you can imagine, they were losing their collective minds. After weeks of working overtime and dozens of dead-end leads, police were tantalizingly close to an arrest, but tensions were rising. We start getting orders from the Joint Operations Center. Have you done this? Have you done that? I understand their concerns. These are special agents in charge. Their jobs are on the line. They don't know me. They don't know my training. They want to take charge. That's why they're special agents in charge in the FBI. I understand that. The problem is they were in Montgomery County. I'm here. I know this rest area, I know my troopers, they don't. So it got a little bit intense. Then the next thing that happens is Trooper Smith and I are on that end, and of course our attention is towards the interior of the rest area, and all of a sudden I hear Dwayne Smith yell, gun, gun, gun. And I turn out of the corner of my eye, I see a man coming with a rifle. He's got his hat on backwards, he's wearing shorts, and as I happen to look, as I start to train my weapon on him, I see DEA about this big. And I realize, oh my God, we're gonna have a friendly fire situation here. And that's when I ordered, if you're not in uniform, get off the mountain. Then the pushback started. My agents can be up there. They've been told to be up there. And I said, you do not understand, sir. It is dark. 
we're going to get one of them killed. And when that happens, if the snipers are in that car, we're in a firefight because we're gonna wake them up. Right now, I've got the advantage of surprise. I wanna keep it. And at one point, the US Marshal came on and basically put me in charge. The US Marshal's office trumps everybody. So we eased that situation. As police shut down the highways and a swarm of officers assembled for the takedown, law enforcement worried that the media might blow their cover. The other immediate concern was, is all right, it's on the radio, media's listening to police communications. They know there's an army of federal, state, and local law enforcement heading to Myersville. Apparently there is a lot of what they describe as police activity, a lot of uh, officers responding to where this car was spotted. We are on the uh, access road at exit 42 on uh, Interstate 70. They have the entire highway north of this exit blocked off with uh, sheriff's deputies and Maryland state troopers. And then it dawns on me, what happens if channel 123 ABC flies over with their helicopter? Ah, that's gonna blow what element of surprise I had made a phone call to a friend of mine, U.S. Secret Service, and I asked him if there's a way we could have airspace secured above us. He called me back in less than 30 seconds by order of the Presidential Authority Secret Service. Frederick County's airspace is secured. We did have one of our affiliate helicopters here, but apparently the police were not happy to see that news helicopter in the area, and they have ordered it to fly away from the immediate scene to not compromise their investigation. Then it was just a matter of time of waiting. Hi there, we're Katie and Ben from the wrestling podcast, Kind of Fun. We're two super fans and wrestling insiders who love to talk about what's going on behind the ropes. And no matter what the world of sports looks like, there's always something new happening in the squared circle. So we cover everything from AEW to New Japan to the WWE. And we keep up with all the gossip and news coming from my favorite sweethearts. Katie, you're the only person I know who would call these bruisers sweethearts. Well, they're sweethearts that could punch your face in. Listen to Kind of Fun free only on Spotify. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As Reichenbaugh guarded the rest stop's exit, Montgomery County Police Captain Drew Tracy met with a team of SWAT officers that they named the Tango Team. At the bottom of the wooded hill behind the rest stop, the Tango SWAT team worked out a plan to capture the snipers. 
They had surprise for 21 days. Now we had surprise. And we had kind of a burning desire inside of us to put this to an end. We had to. At the rest stop, there was about 75 parking spaces. There was bathrooms. The vehicle was backed in. And because of the tinted windows, we could not see inside the blue Caprice. We weren't even sure they were in there. We figured they may not be in there, but we still needed an assault plan. And I remember being in a wood line. I'm saying, okay, what's our plan if they go mobile? And then I looked at these guys who I know, who I respect. They're highly trained. And I said to myself, Drew, shut up. They got it. And I just backed off. Police scanned the hill behind the rest stop with night vision and infrared sensors. They wanted to make sure that Malvo and Muhammad weren't hiding somewhere in the trees. There was an aircraft that flew over the rest area. It was some sort of a helicopter. And to this day, I do not know what kind of aircraft that was, but it made no sound. Not one sound. It was not civilian. It was not law enforcement. The only thing I can tell you is I felt it more than heard it. And I looked up and the leaves were rustling. And I thought, there's no wind. What the hell is that? And then this shadow went sideways real slowly over my head towards the interior of the rest area. And then it dawned on me, that is a military aircraft. And I know who was in it. And you know, to this day, God bless him, he will not tell me what kind of aircraft he was in. He says, I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. The woods looked clear. So the Tango SWAT team assembled at the base of the hill. It was now 3.30 a.m., hours after the sniper's car had been spotted. The Tango SWAT team made its final preparations before they climbed up through the woods to assault the sniper's car from the rear. The decision on the takedown was to go with six individuals, one from Maryland State Police, one from Montgomery County, and four FBI hostage rescue team. We had a game plan. We had two designated shooters. We had breachers to breach the windows, and we had hands-on people. And we practiced real quick in a wood line. And then a decision was made. You know, everybody stood in line, thumbs up, thumbs up, grab shoulder, grab shoulder, go. No comments, no nothing. After four hours of anxious waiting, suddenly everything went into high gear. Reichenbaugh was given a heads up just before the Tango SWAT team entered the rest area. I got the message, Tango team, 30 seconds out. Dwayne and I came down to get between the bad guys and our civilians. The Tango team is fully armed. They've got ballistic vests, helmets, night vision. They had at least two MP5s. They come out of the woods, slightly stooped, weapons up, fully intent on their target. As they get close to the car, the night vision goggles come up. They split into two groups, three down the uh, driver's side, three down the passenger side. And even though there are three guys in a line, they're moving as one. I'm in the wood line, I'm listening, I'm praying that there's no shots fired. My heart's running a mile a minute and I hear the breaking of windows. The Tango team took out the uh, passenger rear window, driver's front window with spring-loaded baton, and out of the vehicle they came. I hear, police, police, get on the ground. You know, I'm listening, I'm listening. And then I hear the word clear. 
and I start walking from the wood line and I see two things right away. I see like a, a glistening of like light. And when I looked down, the glistening was Malvo. Malvo was on the ground, face down, handcuffed. And what happened is when they breached the tempered windows, the glass got in his hair and it hit the light. And he didn't say one word. And I looked down, I looked right at him, and he was sweating. He was sweating pretty good for that cold night. And then I hear jabbering, and it was John Muhammad. He was just jabbering away. It didn't have a lot of meaning to me. It was just kind of big talk. And he was on the ground, he was searched. I was right there when they opened his wallet and there was several pieces of false identification in different names. I remember looking at it and going, oh boy. Muhammad did not impress me one little bit. You could see the fear in his face. Now, Lee Malvo, the young one, different story. I've arrested a lot of people, but this is one of those people that you just know looking at him, this guy isn't done killing if he gets the chance. He's cuffed. He's sitting cross-legged with Trooper Draskovic standing right behind him, probably the largest state trooper in Maryland. Anybody else in their right mind should have been in complete fear. Not this kid. This kid just looked at me with that dead shark eye look. Pal, I'd kill you and everybody here if I had the chance. They were put in cars, and with a helicopter escort, down the road they went. From that point, we did a quick clear of the Caprice to make sure there was no explosives or anything else to be involved. And then we pulled back, investigators took over, and that's when they went to get the warrants. I stayed on the scene, secured the scene. Search warrant was obtained. All the lab guys got up there, and there's still that little bit of doubt in the back of your mind until they pulled that damn sniper rifle out of the back seat of that car. Hidden in a secret compartment behind one of the car's back seats, police found a rifle, a bipod, and a scope. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, the noise of when the lab guy cocked that round out of that rifle and seeing it spinning around in a circle in the air and the tinkle that it made when it hit the parking lot. No formal charges yet in the sniper case, but from authorities, no doubt that they've got their men. Inside the car, the two suspects were sound asleep, and authorities, who feared a violent confrontation, instead made a textbook peaceful arrest. We uh, feel very positive about being here. We have the weapon. It is off the street. Tell us what you think of Chief Moose. Yeah. As police officers, when the news finally broke that the two snipers were in custody and all the officers involved were safe, it was a tremendous relief. It wasn't a celebration. There was no high five and going around or anything like that. It was just, it's over. I was happy that it was over, but it was even happier watching my mom and my elderly neighbor go to the store for the first time because she was so scared to go anywhere. That was my biggest relief, was actually seeing my mom be able to live her life again. To have that satisfaction to know that, that our evidence in Alabama was used to stop somebody from doing what they were doing, it felt just awesome to bring justice to the victims so they know what happened. 
it's not comforting to them. It's just a sense of closure. I feel good because people were not in danger anymore. But, you know, I was dealing with my pain, you know, and uh, my daughter still miss her mom. Uh, I was just so mad. I was at work and um, someone came and told me your brother's killers have been caught. And it just took a while for it all to sink in. I immediately started getting phone calls from people wanting to do interviews and things. I was just amazed that it wasn't terrorists. My gut that this was international terrorism was wrong, but we're still trying to figure out, hey, you've got two guys, you got an older guy and you got this young kid, he's 17 years old. What's this all about? I remember feeling this immense relief and then just disbelief when the information came out that it was an older guy and a young guy, like a young guy? A young guy did this? Why? Journalistically, this moment of being arrested, that's the moment when we really kick into gear because suddenly there's two suspects and a, a story to tell about how we got to that point and who these people are and why this happened. To this day, the why this happened is somewhat elusive. People who do this work, you can be really happy about the case, but you know, unfortunately, there's going to be more coming. You turn around and you, 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 know, you dust yourself off and you get ready to go back to work. And That's Bernard Forsyth. He led the homicide investigation in Montgomery County when the attacks first started. For the public, the arrests led to a tremendous sense of relief. Kids could play outside again, and no one had to worry as they pumped gas. But for homicide investigators like Forsyth, the D.C. sniper case didn't end with the arrests. While the immediate threat seemed to be over, there were still questions to be answered. What was the motive? And who was actually taking the shots? Muhammad or Malvo? But more importantly, detectives and journalists would soon discover that the snipers had committed many more crimes than anyone realized. We ended up going all around the country trying to track leads down and finding out that these subjects actually did more. What had Muhammad and Malvo been doing in the months between the shooting of Kenya Cook in February and the spree that started in D.C. in October? Detectives needed to interview Muhammad and Malvo and scour through evidence in the Blue Caprice to retrace the sniper's steps between Washington State and the nation's capital. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn. 
from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After the arrest, agents took John Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo to Montgomery County to interview them. They were handcuffed and locked alone in separate rooms while officers prepared to question them. Suddenly, a crash rang out from Malvo's room. The agent assigned to guard him unlocked the door and rushed inside. Malvo had slipped one hand out of his handcuffs, stacked a chair onto a desk, and was climbing into the space above the ceiling tiles. The agent pulled Malvo to the floor. Other officers heard the commotion and ran in. Malvo was moved to a new, more secure room where the furniture was bolted to the floor. There, Terry Ryan, a Montgomery County detective, began a strange interview with Malvo. Malvo refused to say a word, pantomiming that his lips were sealed, but he responded to questions through gestures. Ryan wanted to know if something unexpected happened at the final shooting of Conrad Johnson that caused Malvo to leave the duffel bag and glove behind. I think I'm going to stop that because my dead bag glove on my right. Ryan wrote in his report that Malvo nodded and his eyes welled up with tears. He grabbed his collar and began to rock back and forth in his chair. Meanwhile, Muhammad's questioning wasn't going much better. Muhammad told officers he was innocent. He said that he had found the Bushmaster rifle in a dumpster the day before. The suspects weren't cooperating, but police had plenty of evidence to examine. First, they needed to confirm that the Bushmaster rifle from the Caprice was the one used in the shootings. So they brought the rifle to Walter Dandridge, the firearms examiner at the ATF. We'd test fire it in the water tank so that we could recover the bullet in more or less a pristine condition. On one end of that water tank, there's a a shooting port. We stick the barrel in there, and we do take two shots for comparative purposes. We'll take those two projectiles that we just test fired, put them on a comparison microscope, and put the evidence projectile fragment on the microscope, and then look at those together. If all of that is corresponding, then we will call that an identification. Ballistics tests on the gun found inside the sniper's car match the bullets and shell casings used by the sniper. The rifle from the Caprice was a match. It was the weapon that had been used to kill 10 and injure three in the DC area. It was the one used in Alabama as well. And those were only the shootings that the police knew about. As investigators searched the Caprice, they found more and more evidence. Evidence that would connect the snipers to crimes all across the nation. 
police also learned how the snipers got away with shootings in broad daylight. They had modified the car so they could fire a shot from inside without being seen. Today, the sniper's blue 1990 Chevy Caprice is kept by the National Law Enforcement Museum. It's in a warehouse that is normally inaccessible to the public. David Reichenbaugh met me there to explain how the snipers turned the car into a mobile sniper outpost. The museum's collections manager, Lauren Sidney, showed us to the car. So we're in Vault 3. Still a little messy, but there it is. Whoa. That's the car. This is the blue Caprice. Not a white box truck. Not a white box truck. The Sniper's Caprice is a formidable car with navy blue matte paint. It has dull hubcaps and dark tinted windows. It felt strange to stand next to it, this car that the Snipers had used to commit so many cold-blooded acts of evil. Now the car sits in a museum warehouse under sterile neon lights. It's been gutted, its seats torn apart by the FBI when they searched for evidence. So they tore everything out of it, so it's uh, not exactly how it was when they lived with it, though they certainly made some strange modifications. Investigators found the car had been modified into a killing machine, with the sniper shooting through a hole in the trunk of the car. And uh, we can take a look at the trunk. So there it is. There's the famous cutout. Just above the license plate, the snipers had cut a jagged notch into the trunk, an opening just large enough to fit the end of the rifle. Barrel sticks out here. Tripod was here. They had a brown glove that they shoved through that hole. With this trunk down and a brown glove shoved in there, nobody noticed that. But the hole that the snipers carved into the trunk was just the beginning. To use the weapon scope, the snipers would have needed to keep the trunk lid slightly ajar. Just enough for the sight to clear so they could get the sight picture downrange. Anybody else, your, your trunk opens, it'll eventually creep up like that because it's on the spring. You don't want to do that and be seen, so you'd hook the bungee cord to one of the little loops in here. Near the lock. That way he could control it, so when he was done shooting, you just pull the trunk back down, drive off. The snipers also created the secret entrance into the trunk through the back seat of the car. So this back seat pops down. Yeah. And you just crawl in here to yep. the back. See the little lip? See how the, yes. it sort of goes down? Yeah, That's yeah. That's where yeah. the rifle was when we pulled it out of the car. So you wouldn't be able to see the rifle. Ah, I see, I see. That's what you're seeing. You see the back seat. Reichenbaugh says that when they made the arrest, the car was littered with evidence. They found two walkie-talkies, maps with locations of the shootings circled, and a note with the task force tip line number. It looked like a car that somebody had been living in for a month. It clearly smelled like body odor and trash. Just picture the back seat, the driver's seat floor filled full of fast food containers. And some of their personal belongings. Right, you know, some clothes. Books, DVDs, some bags. And there were dated receipts and prepaid phone cards that investigators could use to retrace the sniper's steps. The most important piece of evidence, though, was a laptop computer that proved a treasure trove of information. Investigators learned that the laptop had originally belonged to a man from Clinton, Maryland, a man named Paul LaRuffa. 
when the snipers started randomly shooting people, nobody said, oh, you know, this could be related to what happened to Paul. Nobody had reason to think that until they found my computer. My name is Paul LaRuffa. My wife and I decided to do a crazy thing like uh, open a restaurant. So we did that in 1986. So in 2002, we were in our 16th year. And uh, in September of that year is when, uh, when it happened. What they say is the start of everything, that they killed the five people in one day, really wasn't the start. That's when the whole panic started for the next month. But it at least started on the East Coast when they shot me. There have been some recent developments in Lee Boyd Malvo's Supreme Court case that our team is actively investigating. As a result, episode 12 will be released in two weeks. Next week, we will release a bonus episode. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the Monster series and an update on Lee Boyd Malvo's case. Still to come this season on Monster, DC Sniper. They did have a three-phase plan. The first phase was to shoot five Caucasians per day. Phase two, they were going to shoot a pregnant woman. Washington was the first. There was Arizona. We don't know anything about the Atlanta shooting. We don't know anything about the next night shooting in Baton Rouge. Lee Malvo, when I looked at him, I knew he was a victim. He was a child who had been brainwashed. To have him listen to tapes when he was falling asleep, giving him subliminal suggestions that there was essentially a war going on between blacks and whites. At the end of this interview, I said, what was the motivation? Why did you guys do this? And he looked at me and he says, and I said, well, what does that mean? The matrix and things of that nature were part of the indoctrination. I do believe he was brainwashed, for lack of a better term. I get the feeling he agrees he has to pay a price, but I don't know if he thinks he's already paid it or not. I don't know the answer to that. But I'd like to ask him. You know, it's hard enough working one murder and to have these 13 shootings just in our area, let alone what else went around the country. You know, we knew it was going to be a monumental task. One of the really most alarming moments was when Muhammad stood to represent himself. We had never heard from Muhammad at that point, and he stood up in court and started presenting a case. Part of Muhammad's indoctrination was to desensitize Lee to the violence, to shootings. There's no amount of psychological coercion that would force somebody to, let's say, kill if they didn't already have some kind of predisposition. Might he get out someday? I'm convinced he will, but I don't know when that time is. I remember feeling just basically shock and disbelief that he could have done this. He just looks so innocent. How shocking. How shocking that a person who could commit such evil acts could look like that. Monster DC Sniper is a 15-episode podcast hosted by Tony Harris and produced by iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. 
Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, alongside producers Trevor Young, Ben Kiebrick, and Josh Thane. Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producers Meredith Stedman and Christina Dana. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the first two seasons, Atlanta Monster and Monster the Zodiac Killer. If you have questions or comments, email us at monster at iheartmedia.com or you can call us at 1-833-285-6667. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by the podcast Deep Cover. Hey everyone, we want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll love. Marijuana, guns, a dictator, the Cold War, and the greatest undercover drug bust in history. Deep Cover is the true story that begins with a Detroit FBI agent going undercover in an outlaw motorcycle gang and ends with the U.S. invasion of a foreign country. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jake Halpern guides listeners on this wild journey. Perfect for fans of Narcos, Sons of Anarchy, or anything by the Coen brothers. Deep Cover. You can hear it now in your favorite podcast app or at deepcoverpod.com. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system is not optional. It's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Last season, we looked at a number of crimes and cases that highlighted issues in our legal system. This season, we have a new approach. We're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. Season two of Sworn is underway, and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.